It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. decision that anyone can make is a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And once you do that, the greatest thing you can do with your life is to serve God. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this, man is a fallen star till he's right with heaven. He's out of order with himself and all around him till he occupies his true place in relation to God. When he serves God, he reaches that point where he does serve himself best and enjoys himself most. It is man's honor, it is man's joy, it is man's heaven to live unto God. You know, the the best life, the most enjoyable life, the most honorable life, the most joyful life is a life given to service to Jesus. And if you're a believer in Jesus, then one of the most important things to you should be that you serve Jesus effectively. Well, John knows how important it is to serve Jesus. And, you know, it's interesting that right after this transition of the disciples finally coming to a belief fully in not only the the resurrected Lord and the death of Jesus, that John finishes this gospel in chapter 21 with a a focus on serving Jesus effectively. And this final chapter could really be broken down into three main things that John focuses on. In the first 14 verses, we see four ways to serve Jesus effectively. In verses 15 through 17, we see Jesus restoring Peter in order to enable Peter to serve Jesus effectively, especially after Peter denied Jesus three times. And then in verses 18 through 25, we see Jesus sharing the sacrifice that's serving him effectively requires. So in this chapter, there's a lot of wonderful truths about serving Jesus and doing it in an effective way. And to do this chapter justice, we're going to break it up. This week, we're going to look at the first 14 verses where we're going to see four ways to serve Jesus effectively. And then next week, we'll finish the book of John and we'll be looking at the restoration of Peter to enable him to serve Jesus effectively and also the sacrifice that it's required to serve Jesus effectively. And and hopefully as a follower of Jesus, you have a great desire within you to serve Jesus, that you want to do that. But in order to do that effectively, you have to answer the question of how do I serve Jesus effectively? I've met a lot of believers whose heart's right, the desire is there, but the knowledge is missing. You know, that they want to serve Jesus effectively, but they're just not really clued in, sure about how do I go about doing that. And so what we're going to focus on this morning is going to be very practical, very helpful. We're going to see four ways. It's not the only ways, but there are four practical ways that you and I can serve Jesus effectively in our lives. And we're going to be looking at 
The examples of the disciples here at the beginning of John chapter 21, some of those examples are good, some of those examples are bad, but the reality is we can learn from both. Uh, We can learn from both good examples and bad examples, and we're going to start with actually a bad example that we see from the disciples, but it's one that I think a lot of us can relate to because it's something that they do that typically many of us as believers do as well. And so let's see what we can learn here in verses 1 through 3, starting here with this example that we see from the disciples. John chapter 21 says this. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out immediately and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So John starts off this final chapter of his gospel saying, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, if you remember from last chapter in chapter 20, after Jesus rose from the dead, he showed himself to the disciples two different times both in the same room. Remember that locked room the disciples were in? The first time, we had 10 of the disciples, and Thomas was missing, and Judas is completely missing because he's killed himself. So uh, the second time that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, all 11 are there, and Thomas is included. So Jesus has now, to his disciples, revealed himself twice, And now as we come to chapter 21, John's going to reveal the third time that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples after he rose from the dead. And notice that John reveals that this appearance takes place in a different place. The first two appearances took place in a room there in Jerusalem, and this third appearance takes place at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. Uh, In the Bible, it's referenced as different things, but it's speaking of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. And so John doesn't tell us why the disciples left Jerusalem to go to Galilee, why they left that room that they were kind of hiding in to go up to the northern region of Galilee. But Matthew's gospel does tell us why they made that move, and it's important to understand that as we look at what the disciples do here in John chapter 21. So let's see why they moved from Jerusalem to Galilee. Matthew chapter 28 and verses 10 and also verse 16 tells us this. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So notice that the reason that the disciples leave Jerusalem, leave the room that they are in, and travel up to Galilee is because Jesus told them to. Jesus speaks to these ladies and says, hey, go tell the disciples they need to go to Galilee. And what's going to happen in Galilee? They're going to see me again. And so, you know, that was a good motivation to go to Galilee. But notice we're also told uh, in verse uh, 16 that there was a specific place in Galilee that they were meant to go. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. 
So Jesus doesn't just say, you know, just go to the region of Galilee anywhere you want and, and I'll find you there. He gives a very specific place. There's a mountain within Galilee that Jesus wants the disciples to go and wait for him. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to reveal myself to you as you're there in this mountain in the region of Galilee. Now, the region of Galilee has several mountains around the Sea of Galilee, which you can see from this picture. And, you know, we're not told which mountain they were supposed to go to. And it really isn't important because they don't end up go, staying at the mountain anyway. You know, John chapter 21, we don't have them at the mountain. We have them at the Sea of Galilee. But it's important to note that Jesus told them, go to the mountain. And there is where I'm going to reveal myself to you. And so with that information, let's go here to see what transpires in John chapter 21 and recognize the 11 disciples, they journey to Galilee. They go to this mountain where they're supposed to be, and they go there because Jesus tells them that, okay? Now, we're not told how long the disciples are there. We're not told how long they're waiting for Jesus, it could have been a day. It could have been a week. We don't know how long they've been sitting there waiting for Jesus to show up and reveal himself to them. But notice that we're told Peter does something. As he's waiting for Jesus, he ultimately comes and he says to the disciples there, you know what, I'm going fishing. And John tells us there's a group of guys there with him, and he tells us the name of five of them. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two other disciples. And this whole group decides to say, you know what, Peter, we're going with you. So they're waiting on Jesus, and maybe it's been a while, and we know through the Gospels, Peter's not so good at waiting. Maybe you're not too good at waiting either. And he just says, you know what, I'm going fishing. And this other group that's with him says, hey, Peter, we're going to go with you. Now, in order to go fishing, the disciples have to leave the mountain in Galilee, and they have to go down to the sea where the fish are. So leaving the mountain and going to the sea is a step of disobedience to what Jesus told them to do. But there's something else interesting to note here. Before Jesus called the disciples, many of the disciples, possibly seven of them, were fishermen by occupation. That's what they did. That was their livelihood. That was their life before Jesus came to them and called them to follow him. Now, we know for sure by the Gospels that Peter, James, John, Philip, and Andrew were definitely fishermen. And Philip was a good friend of Nathaniel, and he's the one who tells Nathaniel about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so many scholars believe that Nathaniel also was most likely a fisherman. So, John tells us there's seven disciples that go fishing. He doesn't give us the name of two, but it's very likely that two of them were Philip and Andrew because those are the other two that were fishermen before they came to follow Jesus. And so if that's the case, you have six fishermen and Thomas. Now, we're not told in the Bible what Thomas's occupation was before he followed Jesus. Maybe Thomas was a fisherman as well, or maybe Thomas just doesn't want to be left out because the last time the disciples were together and Thomas wasn't there, Jesus shows up and Thomas missed out. So maybe he's like saying, I'm, hey, you guys are going, I'm going with you. I don't want to miss an appearance of Jesus again. Now, the reason I bring this up is because before Jesus sent the disciples out to this mountain in Galilee to wait and see him, he told them in John chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, 
I also send you. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what Jesus was doing here was reiterating the calling that he had given to the disciples when he first met them. He wanted to remind them of what he called them to do. He is sending them out to reach people for God. And this calling that Jesus shared with them first started way back in Luke's gospel in chapter 5. And it's a really miraculous encounter where Jesus has this miraculous encounter with these fishermen. And after that, he calls them to follow him, and they do. And I want us to read this encounter and remind ourselves of it, mainly because we're going to see a very similar encounter here in John chapter 21, which would bring to their mind something that they experienced three years earlier when they first met Jesus. And so Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this, So it was that the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of their boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And so here's this situation, this encounter that Jesus first has with these fishermen. And Jesus is there, and there's multitudes there, and this multitude wants Jesus to teach, and he's there on the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these two boats that are now on the shore. These guys have been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. They're cleaning their nets. One of the boats belongs to Simon and Andrew, his brother. The other boat belongs to John and James, who are brothers, and they were partners in this fishing uh, business that they had going on. And Jesus says to, to uh, Simon Peter, hey, can I sit in your boat and teach? And Simon lets him. And after Jesus gets done teaching, he says something to Simon that would have been quite a crazy thing in Simon's mind. Hey, Simon, I want you to launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon's re response initially is, Master, we've toiled all night long and caught nothing. I mean, there's no fish today. We were all night long doing this. We already cleaned our nets. I mean, come on, this is a waste of time. But then he turns and says, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down my nets. So Peter and Andrew, they go out. They let down their nets, probably thinking this, nothing's going to happen. And all of a sudden, the net fills with so many fish that it's sinking the boat, the, the fish are breaking the net. They call James and John. They bring their boat over. There's so many fish, it fills both boats. And then notice how Peter responds. 
when he sees this miracle of Jesus providing these fish, he falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus' response to Peter is, Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. Now, Matthew's gospel says that Jesus tells all those fishermen there, so that's Peter and Andrew and James and John, that he was going to make them fishers of men. This new calling in their life. You guys have been, by occupation, fishers of fish, but now you're going to follow me, and I'm going to make you something different. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they responded by forsaking all and following Jesus. So Jesus had given them that calling when he first met them. And for the last three years, they have been learning how to be fishers of men. Jesus has been teaching them, has been helping them get to this place where they can do what he's called them to do. And then Jesus dies. And I'm sure in those three days when Jesus was dead and in the tomb, they thought, our calling is dead. We're never going to be fishers of men. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is risen from the dead. And one of the first things he does as he rises from the dead is reiterates the call. He wants to make sure that these disciples understand, no, the calling is not dead and neither am I. I'm alive. The calling's alive. I have a call for you to be fishers of men, to reach men. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you out to reach people with the gospel. But Jesus says, go to the mountain there in Galilee and I'm going to reveal myself to you again. And as they're waiting at this mountain for Jesus, Peter gets impatient and decides, you know what? I'm going fishing. Six other disciples join Peter, most of which who are probably fishermen as well. See, they're going back to what they used to do. They're going back to what they were confident in being able to do. They went back to their old occupation of fishing instead of waiting for Jesus at the mountain and pursuing the calling of God on their life. And something interesting to note is the last, this is the last time in the Bible that we're going to see these disciples fishing for fish. Jesus is going to meet with them. There's going to be another miracle that happens. And they're finally going to realize, you know what, we have a calling that's different. We're never going back to fishing for fish We're now going to be fishers of men. And throughout the book of Acts, we see them fulfilling the call of God to go and reach people with the gospel. So the first way to serve Jesus effectively is know and follow your God-given calling. You know, if you don't know what God has called you to do, that's something very important to discover. You don't want to just go through life having no clue of what God has for you. What has God called you to do? And once you discover that, once you have a knowledge of that, then you should follow that. I mean, I've come across people who can tell me, you know, what God's called them to do, but they're not doing it. So just having that knowledge is not enough. You actually have to follow what it is that God has called you to do. Now, something important to note here is typically when people think of the calling of God on their life, they're thinking of something specific for them. But what we need to understand is there's two types of calls that God has for each individual. There's the general call of God for all believers, and then there's the specific call of God for individual believers. And the general call of God is something that the Bible reveals that God desires for all believers to do. For example, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Obey God. Love your enemies. 
I mean, these are all general calls. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. That's something that every single believer in Jesus Christ is called to do generally. It's not like, well, that's for the pastor, not for me. No, that's for everybody. But then there's also a specific call that God gives to a certain individual that's not for every believer. Now, there might be other believers with that same call, but it's not something that is a a general thing for everyone. For example, you might be called to be a missionary. You might be called to be a pastor. You might be called to be a worship leader. You might be called to minister to, to children. Those are just some examples of things that you might be called to do. God called me to come here and plant a church and pastor in Pasadena. And that's not a call that he gives to every believer. It was specific to me. It's not something general to everyone. And so understand there's a general calling for all believers. And there's also a specific calling for each individual believer that God has. And you want to discover both of those in your life. And you know what I personally found that helps? Because The general call is real easy. I mean, the Bible makes it really clear what God tells all believers to do. Just read your Bible and you'll discover it. The specific call can be more difficult to understand, can be more difficult to discover. But I have found if you are faithful to do the general call of God in your life, it makes it real easy to hear and to know and to follow the specific call. If you're doing what God has already said to do in the Bible then that specific thing that he wants you to do is going to be so much easier for you to discover and then for you to actually live out once you discover it. Now, if you don't know the specific call of God in your life, don't let that stop you from doing the general things that he's called you to do. I've come across many believers where it's like, well, I don't serve at all because I don't know what God's specifically called me to do. It's like, well, there's a lot of general things that he's called you to do. Why aren't you doing any of those if you have yet to know the specific thing that he has for you? Francis Chan wrote this. Most of us use, I'm waiting for God to reveal his calling on my life as a means of avoiding action. Did you hear God calling you to sit in front of the television yesterday? Or to go on your last vacation? Or to exercise this morning? Probably not, but you still did it. The point isn't that vacations or exercising are wrong, but that we are quick to rationalize our entertainment and priorities and yet are slow to commit to serving God. It's a convicting quote. Don't wait to serve Jesus until you know all the specific things that he's calling you to do. Serve Jesus in the area you know he's called you in, and the more you discover his calling, continue to be faithful in those things. So the first way to serve Jesus effectively is to know and follow both the general and specific call of God in your life. The second way to serve Jesus effectively is seen as what happens to these disciples as they go fishing. Let's see that in verses 3 through 6. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out immediately and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So notice after Peter says, I'm going fishing and this other group of six disciples join him. They go and they fish and they fish all night long. And John tells us 
they caught nothing. Hour after hour after hour of fishing, most of these guys, they know what they're doing. This used to be their occupation, and yet they don't catch a single fish. So instead of waiting for Jesus on the mountain, these disciples go back to their old occupation. They go back to what they think they're good at, catching fish. But they spend all night long trying to do it, and they don't even catch one. And then the morning comes, and notice that Jesus is standing on the shore, and Jesus asks a humorous question, a question that I'm sure he knew the answer to. Children, have you any food? Basically asking, did you guys catch any fish last night that you can eat? Now, this are the, probably the last words you want to hear after fishing all night and catching nothing. You know, when I played basketball in high school and we lost, a question I didn't want to hear when I got home and someone didn't watch the game was, how'd the game go? Well, it went horrible. I, you know, we lost. Or even worse than that, if I played really bad, how did you do? I mean, those are the questions that, you know, when you've had a, a night of failure, you don't want to hear those questions. That's like salt on an open wound. And Jesus knew the disciples didn't have any food, so why does he ask this question? Well, I believe he asked them that to get them to confess that they failed and to recognize they couldn't do it on their own. And now Jesus is going to teach them a very important lesson. He tells them, you know what, guys? Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you're going to find some fish. Now, those boats are small. They're about seven and a half feet in width. Whether you cast your net on the left side or the right side of the boat, it's not going to make any difference as to whether or not fish come into that net. It's such a, a small space. And so I'm sure they're thinking, yeah, we've been casting on the, the left side all night and caught nothing, Jesus. Throwing it on the right side, that isn't going to do any good. It's that absurd statement. But you know what? That absurd statement happened three years before when Jesus said, you know what, guys? Go back out. Cast your net in the deep and watch what happens. And so they have a choice whether they're going to do what this stranger, because they don't even know it's Jesus at this point, tells them to do. And they decide to obey the request. They cast the net on the right side of the boat and we're told they were not able to draw in the net because of the multitude of fish that fills that net. So the disciples leave the mountain where Jesus told them to go, and they went fishing. They go fishing against Jesus' direction, and the result was they caught nothing. Well, then Jesus meets them in their failure, and now he directs them to fish. He directs them to cast their net on the right side of the boat. And this time, as they follow the direction of Jesus, notice the result is that they succeed and catch a multitude of fish. You see, when the disciples don't wait for Jesus' direction, when they go and do things in their own strength, they fail. But when they follow the direction of Jesus, and they ultimately are blessed by the miraculous power of Jesus, now they succeed. You know, this was a practical lesson that Jesus had shared with the disciples throughout his ministry with them in words and in action. And some of the lessons in life are, you know, harder for us to take on board, harder for us to really uh, apply to our life. And this is one of those with the disciples. And in John chapter 15, Jesus shared something that I think is hard for anybody to really believe and apply. We might accept it as, well, Jesus said it, but it can be hard to really, really believe it. He says this in John 15, 5. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And here's the thing that can be hard for us. For without me, you can do nothing. This is such an important truth for us to intellectually comprehend, but even more importantly, to actually apply. To actually believe, I can do nothing of any spiritual significance without Jesus. I know in my life, that's been a hard truth to believe. Well, I can do this, Lord, and, and I can do that. And, you know, there's lots of things that I can, you know, add to, you know, what I'm going to do for you in my own strength and my own power, my own wisdom. And I felt like, no, no, I can do things. Maybe not that big thing over there, but, but I can do this thing here and, and I can do that thing there. And not accepting the truth that, no, I can't do anything without the wisdom and the power and the strength of Jesus. You know, I think we're often like the disciples and we hear these words of Jesus, without me you can do nothing. But it doesn't really sink in until we fail. It doesn't really sink in until we go through that experience where it's like, oh no, Jesus, you, maybe those people can't do nothing, but I can do things. Watch. And then you go and you seek to try to do something for Jesus in your own strength and power and you fail miserably and all of a sudden these words become real. All of a sudden, what was an intellectual thing that you didn't really accept because some, becomes something that you've experienced. <laughs> Maybe it's true. Maybe I really can't do anything without Jesus. And it's a good place to be. I think it's a good place for the disciples to have this failure in something that they thought, well, surely we can catch fish. I mean, we did it our whole lives. No, you need Jesus to even do that. The second way to serve Jesus effectively is recognize that without Jesus, we can do nothing, but with Jesus, we can do all things. That's the other side of the coin, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So don't just realize, well, I can do nothing without Jesus, man, I'm just never going to accomplish anything in my life. Realize, no, 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 but with Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's that balance of understanding in myself I don't have the ability to accomplish anything for God, but in his strength, I can accomplish anything he brings my way. You know, one of the greatest hindrances to serving Jesus effectively is trying to serve him in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own power, thinking that you in yourself have enough to do what he's calling you to do. The reality is you don't. I don't. We will always fail when we rely upon ourselves. And we'll always succeed when we rely upon Jesus. You know, I failed many times in trying to be effective in serving Jesus. And this has been one of those things where, you know, I wish that the first time it would have sunk in and from then on it'd be like, well, Jesus, I believe it. I can do nothing without you. But it took failure and another failure, and another failure, and then, you know, I trust in him, and a little while longer, I start getting more confidence in myself. Well, maybe, maybe I can do it again, and then I fail. And it's just one of those lessons where we have to come to this realization, hey, without him, I can do nothing. With him, I can do everything. Hey, Arthur wrote this. So many times we say that we can't serve God because we aren't whatever is needed. We're not talented enough or smart enough or whatever. But if you are in covenant with Jesus Christ, He is responsible for covering your weakness, for being your strength. 
He will give you his abilities for your disabilities. You know, the reality is you and I have so many disabilities when it comes to serving Jesus. And the good news for us is that Jesus' ability overcomes our disabilities. As you're going out there and you recognize, I am not able to accomplish the task, to accomplish the calling, to accomplish what God has given me. That's a good recognition, but then realize, hey, but Jesus, his ability will make me able. I'm full of disabilities. I'm full of problems. I'm full of failures. I'm full of areas of weakness. But you know what? Jesus can overcome all of those and enable me to do what he calls me to do. Jesus never calls us to do something that he won't give us the power and the strength and the wisdom to accomplish. So if you've been trying in your own strength and failing, if you've been burning the midnight oil and getting nothing but burnout, you need to recognize without Jesus you can do nothing, but with Jesus you can do all things. Stop relying on yourself and start relying on Him, and just watch the amazing difference that happens in what you're able to do for Him. So the first way to serve Jesus effectively is know and follow your God-given calling. The second way is recognize without Jesus we can do nothing, but with Jesus we can do all things. The third way to effectively serve Jesus is seen in how the disciples now are going to respond to this miraculous catch of fish in verses 7 through 12. It says this, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. Now, it's important to note when Jesus did this miracle three years before this, John was there. John saw this. John was a part of it. He experienced this miracle firsthand. He saw that net that they fished all night with and caught nothing filled to breaking points. And when he sees that same miracle again, it clicks. And he realizes the person on the shore who told us to throw our net on the right side, that is the Lord. That's Jesus. And he says it out loud. He's the one who recognizes who it is. But notice that Peter's the first one to respond. And you see that throughout the Gospels, even at the tomb. John was the first to recognize Jesus was risen, and Peter's the first one to kind of respond to that. And notice the response of Peter here. When he hears, it's Jesus on the shore. He's just in probably, you know, his undergarment because he's out there fishing. He grabs his outer garment, puts it on, and he plunges into the sea, and he starts swimming to the shore where Jesus is is at. Peter was eager for fellowship with Jesus, and you know, rowing a boat full of fish was just going to take too long, and so he decides just to jump in and get to Jesus as fast as he can. And I think something very important about this eagerness for fellowship with Jesus among Peter is the fact that Peter just failed Jesus really miserably. He denied Jesus three times, but yet there's still this eagerness. I want to be with Jesus. I want to fellowship with Jesus. And I think that's so important for us because our tendency oftentimes when we fail Jesus is to have the opposite feeling. Oh, I failed him. I don't want to be anywhere near him. 
we kind of have this feeling about, I need to distance myself. Maybe I need to do a little penance. And, and after that, maybe, you know, then I can kind of slowly get close to him again. And that's not what's healthy for us. It's that catch-22 of, of we fail and we kind of keep ourselves from Jesus, who's the one that we need the most to restore us and to forgive us and to help us get back on track, but we neglect him because of you know, any kind of fear, uh, feelings of inadequacy or failure or whatever, and it just makes us fail even more. And I like the fact that even though Peter had failed miserably, he still wants to be in that fellowship with Jesus. He's eager for it. He gets in that water, and he's swimming to get to Jesus. You know, the best place that we can be after we have sinned and failed is in fellowship with Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. And this is so important because so often we maybe think like, man, if I come swimming to Jesus, running to Jesus, trying to get to Jesus after I failed, is he going to reject me? Is he going to push me away? Is he going to condemn me? You know, what's going to happen if I make that effort to get to him after I've failed so miserably against him? Well, notice how Jesus responds to Peter and these disciples, verse 9 through 12. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. So the disciples were eager to fellowship with Jesus, but notice that Jesus is also eager to fellowship with them. He makes them some breakfast. He invites them to join him for breakfast because he wants that time with him. He's not like, hey, guys, you just stay out in that boat. We'll just kind of have this conversation. I'll be at the shore. We'll kind of keep distance with one another. Hey, no, come. I have breakfast for you. I want to fellowship with you guys. And we see something here as well of just, you know, Peter was a pretty strong guy. <laughs> Notice that all these fish, 153, John tells us, are in this net. And since he swam to shore, the other guys don't do anything with the net. And then Peter himself carries this whole net of fish up onto the shore, which shows, you know, he was a pretty tough fisherman. But the big thing I want you to note here is that Jesus comes to the shore where the disciples were. Now, remember, they weren't supposed to be there. They're supposed to be at the mountain. They're in disobedience, but Jesus wants fellowship with him. So he comes to where they're at. He makes them breakfast, and he invites them to fellowship with him. The third way to effectively serve Jesus is be eager for fellowship with Jesus because he is eager for fellowship with you. You know, if you want to effectively serve Jesus, you've got to fellowship with him on a regular basis. And here's the thing that I have discovered in my life, and I'm sure you probably discovered it as well. If you are not eager for fellowship with Jesus, if you do not have this desire and longing to spend time with Jesus, guess what? You won't do it. If within you, you do not want to, I mean, even if you have a desire, we're good at making excuses. Even if you have a desire, we're good at putting it off and procrastinating and saying, well, if I find time today, I'll spend time with Jesus. And the day goes by, well, I didn't find any time. Maybe I'll find time tomorrow. But if you are eager, if you have a desire, if you want it, guess what? You will make time to fellowship with Jesus because you realize this is a privilege. This is something I want. Just like any other person that you love, any other thing that you love to do, you make time for him. You make time for that thing. And the same is true with Jesus. If you're really eager about it, 
make time for him. And the crazy thing to me, like, I understand why we should be eager to spend time with Jesus. And I could see why God would just be like, you know, there's billions of you guys. I'm running the universe. I'm busy right now. But the wonderful thing is he is eager to spend time with you and he's eager to spend time with me. And the reason that time doesn't happen between you and God is never on his end. It's always on yours. He's always available. He's always ready. There's never going to be a time where you come to him and he says, you know what, why don't you come back in an hour or in a week? I'm ready right now, you and me. Let's spend time together. The reason it doesn't happen is always because we choose not to spend time with him. You know, Jesus' invitation here to the disciples to come and have breakfast reminds me of, you know, the church in Laodicea that Jesus writes to, and he gives an invitation to them as well. And this is a church that's screwed up. Man, the Laodicean church was a messed up church. These disciples had failed Jesus. He still comes and gives them this invitation to meet with him. And I love the fact that even to the messed up church, this is what Jesus has to say to them in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Hey, I'm there. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. If you're going to open it and let me in, Hey, I will spend time with you. I will dine with you. I will fellowship with you. I'm there. I'm ready. I'm willing. Are you willing to have me? Are you willing to fellowship with me? Because if you are, then let's have some time together. You know, when you fail like Peter did, make sure you understand it doesn't change the fact that Jesus still wants fellowship with you. That's one of the lies that the enemy tries to bring. Oh, you think God's going to spend time with you after what you did? You think God wants anything to do with you after what you just did or after what you just thought or after what you just watched? The enemy loves to bring that condemnation of God wants nothing to do with you, but it's a lie. Even in our greatest failures, he's saying, come to me. That's the wonderful story of the prodigal son, of the father, arms open, his son, this huge failure. And he comes back, and the father receives him with gladness, throws a party. My son who was lost is now found. Don't think that you're going to sin so much that God doesn't want fellowship with you. Ken Geyer wrote this. Saints, no matter how far you've drifted, Jesus is always there on the shore waiting for your return, waiting with a comforting fire, warm food, and an affirming arm to put around your shoulder. If you've drifted from Jesus because of some sin in your life or, or for whatever reason it may be, know that Jesus still wants to fellowship with you. He's waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting for you to repent. He's waiting to forgive. He's waiting to fellowship. He wants you. You know, fellowship with Jesus is one of the greatest privileges we've been given by God. And I encourage you to be eager for that fellowship and be blessed by the fact that Jesus is eager to fellowship with with you. So the first way to serve Jesus effectively is know and follow your God-given calling. The second way is recognize without Jesus we can do nothing, but with Jesus we can do all things. The third way is be eager for fellowship with Jesus because he is eager for fellowship with you. And the fourth way to serve Jesus effectively is seen in what Jesus does for the disciples at the breakfast that he prepares. Verse 13 and 14 says this, Jesus then came and took bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
Notice here, not only does Jesus invite the disciples for breakfast. What a wonderful invitation. Jesus is inviting you, but he's not only inviting, he's the host and he's the servant. He's the one who's made the meal and he's the one who actually serves them this wonderful breakfast that he provided. And I think the important lesson here is before we try and serve Jesus, we need to allow Jesus to serve us and to feed us. You know, I have discovered in a lot of years of ministry that you're really only effective in ministry after you have allowed Jesus to minister to you and to feed you. You know, this morning, if I didn't take any time to meet with Jesus and have Jesus to minister to me and feed me from his word, I wouldn't have anything to share. I wouldn't have anything to say. It's because I took the time to let Jesus minister to me, to let Jesus feed me from his word, that I now have something of encouragement, hopefully, to uh, give to you as well. And I think the same is true for everybody here. If you want to have something biblical, if you want something spiritual, if you want to have something encouraging or challenging to share with someone, you have to first allow Jesus to minister to you. you got to first allow Jesus to feed you so that you now have something in which to give to others. The fourth way to serve Jesus effectively is let Jesus minister to you and feed you before you serve him. You see, before you can be effective in ministering to others, Jesus needs to minister to you. Before you can be an effective in feeding others, you need to be fed by Jesus. Before you can be effective in encouraging others, you need to be encouraged by Jesus. Before you can be an effective in loving others, you need to be loved by Jesus. It's through that time where Jesus does all those things for you that enables you to then turn around and do those things for others. Jesus invited the disciples to come and eat breakfast with him that he prepared and that he served. And you know what? He gives uh, many wonderful invitations to us as well. And one of the ones I love is Matthew 11, 28 through 30. It says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. You know, if you're trying to serve Jesus right now and you feel like, man, I am heavy laden with burdens, with cares, with worries, with difficulties, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus. He says, I'll give you rest. Take Jesus's yoke and give him yours. Give him your burdens. Give him your worries. Give him your cares. Give him your struggles. Give him your difficulties because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if you want to serve Jesus effectively in the time that you have left here on this earth, then there are four practical things that you and I should do. First, know and follow your God-given calling. Second, recognize without Jesus you can do nothing, but with Jesus you can do all things. Third, be eager for fellowship with Jesus because he is eager for fellowship with you. And fourth, let Jesus minister to you and feed you before you serve him. You know, if you're in that boat where you're like, you know what, maybe I know some of the general things that Jesus has called me to do, but I don't know the specific call. Or you're here and you're thinking, I'm not doing a very effective job of serving Jesus. I just want to take a moment just to be quiet before the Lord. 
to give you an opportunity just between you and God to pray. And if you want God to reveal to you his call in a specific way or even in some general ways, I would encourage you, let today be the start of a prayer where you're asking God for him to do that for you. Because guess what? God's not wanting to keep that secret. He doesn't want you to not know. He wants you to know because he wants you to do it. And so I would encourage you, pray today and let that prayer continue to happen in your life until God reveals to you those specific things, those general things that he desires for you to do. And if you're struggling with serving him the way that you should, if you're struggling with putting these things into practice, then I would just encourage you, come to the Lord, ask for his forgiveness, and then ask for his strength, ask for his ability to put these things into practice in a way that would bring glory to him. And so before I pray, I'm just going to give a time just to be quiet before the Lord and that you get an opportunity just to pray whatever you feel you need to right now, and then I'll close this in prayer.